Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Coming to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018, the Blockchain and Future Tech Expo. This is going to be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. We're going to be talking about blockchain and its applications. We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and several other future technologies that are poised to and actually changing our lives as we speak. Here's why you should attend. As you may know, early adopters are the ones that investigated and profited from things like the gold rush in the 1800s, from the dot-com boom in the 1990s, from the internet boom in 2005, from the smartphone explosion in 2007, from the real estate boom that ended in 2008, and of course, from the Bitcoin boom that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first, and their covered wagons, they find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter and you want to find the biggest nuggets, then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more. But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is going to have not only 5,000 plus attendees, but will showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. That's blockchainfuturetechexpo.com. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Future Tech Podcast. I am Alan Thomas, and today we have two guests, actually. We have Laura Gell, partner at Baker Hostetler, and James Scherer, also a partner at Baker Hostetler. Uh, hello to both of you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Likewise. Okay, and we're just going to jump right into it. What does Baker Hostetler do? And either one of you, uh, well, and either one of you can. Add, and actually, I'll start with you, Laura, so that way we can kind of, and we'll just kind of jump back and forth. Baker Hostetler is a national law firm. We provide all sorts of legal services um, to clients all over the country and um, internationally as well. Um, we are, both James and I, focus um, some, at least some of our work on areas involving emerging technologies. I'm primarily a uh, privacy and data security lawyer. Okay, great. And and, uh, and anything you want to add to that, James? Yeah, I'd say it's, it's, it's nice to be part of a national firm that does offer that full, use a big word here, panoply of legal services because... You know, when it comes to the, the types of areas that Laura and I practice where we get to, to get involved with newer technologies, there's a lot more areas where we can apply them. So if you're talking about blockchain or you're talking about artificial intelligence or algorithm development or either you know, newer practices for data management, it's not just in the context of litigation. It's not just in the context of data privacy considerations. You might work with a merger and acquisition team or you might be uh, giving some advice that relates to a tax question or you know, we've done a lot of work in the healthcare space because we've got a very active healthcare group. It's 
it's nice, and, and we do work with hundreds of attorneys, where you've got a specialty that you can then leverage and utilize across a lot of different types of matters for a lot of your clients. Okay, and, and let me just... And let me just ask, since both of you are involved with emerging te- technologies, blockchain and such, how did, uh, and, uh, and this question is for both of you, uh, how did each of you as attorneys, I guess, m- gravitate order t- gravitate over to working with emerging technologies in particular? Uh, Laura, you can start. Sure. So I um, started out, I did not start off as a technology lawyer at all. I started out as a First Amendment lawyer um, representing media companies. But in the uh, late 1990s, all issues around publication, which is really what, what happens for First Amendment questions, suddenly shifted from things being published in newspapers and magazines to the internet. And I got recruited to go to AOL, which at that point was the largest internet company uh, in the world, to help them build the, the law of the internet with regard to responsibility for third-party speech. And once I got there, um, you know, it was a rapidly growing company. My responsibilities grew rapidly and became the head of litigation for the company. But everything that we did, really all the legal issues were brand new because the internet was brand new and there really wasn't any law. And um, I I kind of fell in love with um, being a lawyer in an area where there were no existing rules. It turns out it's more fun to try to make up what the rules should be than to apply ones that already exist. Um, And that's, you know, that really has shaped my practice since that time, being interested in how the law, um, how the law addresses brand new technologies and new questions that that it hasn't before and when the right time to regulate or to legislate about those technologies is. And, and do, you, do you feel like there'll ever be a point where the law can completely catch up with the no. internet or with emerging technologies, or is it just we can only get to a certain distance? No, I think that the law moves much more slowly than technologies. It's, it's pretty clear, even in the, the rate of adoption, you know, at the, the rate that the internet was adopted, the law has moved slowly. And in fact, we're still dealing in that area of law with some pre-internet era laws, um, mainly the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and the Electronic Communications um, Privacy Act, which are 1986 era laws, they still haven't caught up with the fact that the internet's been around for a long time now, about 20 years or or more. Um, And, you know, technology moves incredibly quickly. In fact, the speed at which we're seeing uptake of artificial intelligence and blockchain is much faster than we saw the internet because they are dispersed via the internet. Everything's faster. Law just doesn't move that that fast. It'll it'll always lose the race, and probably for good reason. I think you couldn't possibly keep changing the law at the rate the technology changes and give anybody any kind of um, predictability or consistency or understanding what the rules were going to be, you know, before they apply them. Ah, understood, understood. And and James, uh, so how how did you come to working in emerging technology? This is always an interest of mine, but uh, I think in some ways, as Laura said, as uh, as lawyers, sometimes the practice picks you. And I was in a position where I was in in house, and we had some technology issues that came up, specific to e discovery and related data privacy considerations. And I was one of the younger people on the team, and I think the assumption was that I knew computers, and I just picked it up. I started working with our outside vendors at the time. You know, it was an area I was interested in, so I had no problem kind of volunteering myself into that practice. But, you know, just then it was 10 years of uh, continued work in this space, just uh, building out skills, trying to stay abreast of things, and then taking opportunities to to write and to speak on technologies as they were being developed so that when the time came to work on these issues for clients, either prospectively or for clients we already had dealing with these issues, I was prepared uh, to give some advice 
from a running start rather than having to learn it all specifically for a matter. Right. And, and so, and, and so I'm curious, I, I guess, um, um, dealing in the, you know, dealing in the legal aspect of emerging technology, that's not something that we all always think about first. What do you, what would the two of you say that the near term or the, the next 12 months or 24, 12, 24 months of your industry will look like dealing in the legal aspects of all this? Cause like you said, it changes so rapidly and it just seems like you, it almost seems like you would be in a constant state of overwhelm trying to keep up uh, with, you know, with everything that goes on. Uh, and, and either one of you can, can answer first. I think it's been a, you know, it's, we're in an interesting moment um, as we have particularly blockchain and artificial intelligence um, and somewhat also the Internet of Things and figuring out, you know, what's going to happen with, with legal obligations. There's often a moment or several moments at the beginning of, of a technology where where there aren't really any rules, where the law hasn't caught up. And so it can be a bit of the, you know, kind of the Wild West. And I think that's where things have been with blockchain and cryptocurrencies for the last several years. Um, Bitcoin was invented, you know, came to be in 2009, arising out of the financial crisis. And for a while, it was just kind of a, you know, it was it was created, the whole idea was that it would be created to circumvent, to uh, avoid the need for central institutions like governments. And so for a while, it was able to kind of exist on the fringes um, without government regulation of, of too much, um, you know, impact. And then governments began to realize that a lot of anonymous transfers of value were, you know, caused certain concerns like anti-money laundering and such. And they jumped on that first, but there still were a long period of time where they really weren't regulating or legislating rules for things like, you know, digital currencies. And the last year or so, there has been a, a recognition, at least in the U.S. And, and really internationally too, governments around the world are grappling with this. That you know, governments don't necessarily like technologies that are created to make government unnecessary. Government, you know, has a vested interest in stay, staying in power mm. and creating rules. They don't. They don't really want to be, you know, obsolete. So they are realizing, you know, maybe a little bit belatedly that things like initial coin offerings should be subject to law. And you see the SEC and the CFTC waking up to um, issues around digital currencies. The FTC is starting to regulate sort of the false claims and fraud aspects of that. You know, so that's all in addition to the, the criminal laws or the you know, concern by law enforcement about anonymous transfers of funds. Um, it's, it's all coming, but it's taken you know really almost 10 years for some of this law to start to catch up to a technology that's now, and this is just sort of on the digital currency, cryptocurrency side, it's pretty well established. Um, so I think that suddenly there's a, a kind of a scramble on that part of, you know, a number of government agencies to catch up and to create rules that offer some transparency and some predictability and consistency. We're definitely not there yet. And so I think the next year or so, next couple of years, will be very active times for regulators, either bringing enforcement actions or issuing guidance to try to set, set some rules for what's already a very active area of, uh, um, you know, business opportunity and business activity. So, so, so do you think, uh, and, I, and, I, and I know we've said this before, it is kind of the Wild West in terms of, in some aspects, in terms of, uh, it, it's in terms of how people look at Bitcoin or, or, or cryptocurrencies. Is it, uh, is it, will it truly be possible for, for it to become as commonplace as, say, people using debit cards today? I think it, I think it will. Um but I think there is a way to go, ways to go um, between 
now and there then, at least in the U.S., in terms of, you know, what what the, you know, regulatory structures are, what the rules are in various contexts. Um, because right now they're, it's really not fleshed out, and there's a lot of experimentation and a lot of uncertainty. Good, good. I, and, and because I always, always wonder about that. If, if, you know, if we were in a different time just a few decades back, you know, the way people talk about Bitcoin now, I figure like, well, it's the same way people would have talked about chips and cards or these debit cards or so on and so forth. It's just, you know, it's just, it's just the next step. It's just, it's just how technology moves. But, um, but for, for the both of you, well, and, and actually, I'm sorry, James, I, I, I meant to get your answer too about where you kind of see all this going over the next couple of years. I, I don't disagree with uh, Laura. I think that the areas that I'm of most interest in, or at least where I think that I can help our clients add some value to what they're they're considering, are those areas in kind of the applied technologies, uh, looking like artificial intelligence, algorithm development, and what that means for people vis-a-vis the practice of law and what regulators might look at. I think for, you know, Laura's talking about blockchain and, and looking at these use cases, you know, we're, we're addressing some of that. But I'd say with um, kind of the more complicated algorithm development and utilization by clients, that's definitely already happening. And what's surprising then is it's almost as though the attorneys have to catch up to what their clients are doing and then work backwards in that and saying, okay, well, does this square with where we are today? And if we are kind of in the Wild West, that's one thing. But then to say, well, what is it that we're doing? Are we going to run afoul of considerations as the law catches up to what we're doing? Um, and there you can kind of audit practices and, and get a good sense. So an example here might be where you look at the use of algorithms and, you know, they're they're working, they're providing a benefit to the company, but perhaps there's a disparate impact uh, issue on the back end. And the company may not be exactly aware of why that's happening, but they can start to audit their practices and at least audit the results and say, hey, you know, do we have to be concerned about this? And sometimes when we're working with clients on issues like that, or we're trying to raise them uh, those issues to our clients' attention, can take a step back and say, well, if you're worried about it, then you definitely should look into it a little bit more, get a better sense of what's happening. We know that it's unlikely that ignorance will be a complete excuse for, for certain things. So how can we start to build a foundation for what we're doing? How can we look at these things critically and then be prepared for where we think the law is going to go or where the law might evolve in the next who knows, five to 10 years. So, so that brings up another question for me, James. Do you sometimes find yourselves, depending on what client you're working with or what company you're working with, do you sometimes find yourself uh, yourselves among the attorney pool needing to kind of teach each other in order to keep up with what you need to do to fulfill the client's need, you know, depending on what it is that they're into? Uh, yeah, I, I think that that's, that active knowledge sharing is a big part of the practice here at Baker. Um, I, I know that I'm excited to learn if I sit down with Laura and she can give me additional detail or the benefit of her thoughts and her consideration on certain types of technologies or what client experiences have been. I mean, that's that's the benefit of a big firm like this period where I might wor- be working on an artificial intelligence contracting issue with a client dealing with healthcare, and there are very specific terms there associated with the types of, of healthcare data we're dealing with. There, it's it's so worthwhile for me to have people that I can reach out to and say, you know, what does this mean? What does this mean in reality? How are these things been uh, dealt with in a traditional fashion, are we doing something that's that's fundamentally different? And if so, how do we incorporate those considerations into the project that I'm working on? I don't know, Laura, do you agree? I really do. I mean, I think I mean, one, of the, 
one of the things I like best is particularly when you're grappling with, with brand new issues and brand new technologies and legal issues that no one's thought about before is being able to sit down um, and brainstorm and, and work it through with colleagues, each of whom comes with different expertise and different um, experiences. We're building out, we have a, a blockchain uh, technologies team here at Baker, and you know we didn't have one six months ago, and nobody had one a year ago, really. Um, so how do you build that? One of the ways that, that we go about, you know, we, we think about it is not, well, we need to go hire some blockchain lawyers, it's we have all these lawyers in the firm who have either, you know, who have industry-specific expertise, who have practice area expertise. They might be patent lawyers and intellectual property lawyers who then have to learn the technology to write blockchain patents. Or we have, you know, healthcare lawyers, as James alluded to earlier, who have to learn, wait a minute, this is a way that this technology can be applied in this industry that I serve, and how does all this square with existing healthcare law? You know, what about HIPAA? What about, you know, other, other rules and regulations? So we are all teaching each other, and in fact, we're spending a fair amount of time building a team so that everybody, you know, can share the kinds of, you know, what they bring to the, the equation while simultaneously learning about new technologies and how they fit into their existing, you know, areas of, of knowledge. So that's pretty exciting for you guys as attorneys. And like you said, you get to get, basically get to create along the way, along with puzzling out how will this fit into existing law? You know, how does it all fit together? Okay. And um, let me just let me, let me just ask both of you. And I always like to ask this question: uh, What developments in your in your area do you think are just so ambitious that they're unlikely to happen, versus the more realistic developments that are coming? You know, there's always that thing of there are flights of fancy that people have where the guests will say, "Well, that's more like." 30 years out, not two years out, you know? So I'm just always curious as to what kinds of, what kinds of things cross your desk or that ideas people come up with where you just say, well, that would be decades out, not years out. And, uh, and I'll start with you, Laura, with that. So, so one of the things I've been spending a lot of time thinking about, you know, in my practice as a, as a privacy and, and data security lawyer, along with this emerging technologies piece, is something called digital identity, or it's also called self-sovereign identity. And the idea is, you know, We've got a problem with this, the current way we manage identity, which is basically you know, over the internet, username and password. And every time you go anywhere to a, a website, any interaction, the internet wasn't architected to identify a person. It was, it was architected for endpoint to endpoint, you know, computers connecting. Um, so every time you go somewhere with that connection, you have to say who you are and you have a username and a password and you share a bunch of data about yourself, which has created these huge pools of data, which have been in the news a bit lately, um, that are vulnerable to all sorts of misuse and, and hacking and things like that. So there's an idea um, using blockchain technology um, around creating digital identity, which is an identity that you that is you know solely yours, that you control, that you share what information about you, you choose what information about you is shared, and you only share the minimum necessary data, and you may even choose, share it as a validator, you know, and the, the example I give is um, you go to a bar now and you want to drink, and, and if the bartender takes pity on me and thinks maybe somehow I'm not 21, he asks me for my ID, and I give him an ID, and that ID shows my, you know, not just that I'm long past 21 now, but that I, how tall I am and how much I weigh and where I live um, and whether I need corrective lenses. It's a lot more information than the bartender needs. So the idea in a digital identity is that for that particular interaction, I can just share a validator digitally that's accessible to me that says, yes, she's old enough to have a drink. 
in a separate interaction in healthcare, I would share my health information only. Or in an interaction for a real estate transaction, I would share the information only relevant to that. And that would eliminate these huge stores of data floating around and would give me control. Um, I will not go on about it too long. It has lots of other uses, including uses for, for giving identity to people around the world who are undocumented. And the United Nations is really passionate about this project and trying to, to give identity, legal identity, to the, the huge 6% of the world's population, I think, or maybe I'm getting the number wrong, does not have any kind of legal identity. So the United Nations has invested heavily in something trying to bring digital identity to everybody by 2030. So that said, there's a ton of these projects out there. They're super exciting. I'm working with some clients on one of them right now. But there's a lot of questions, um, both about regulatory compliance, including with the new um, European General Data Protection Regulation that's coming in, and about just the mechanics of how does this work? How do you validate, starting from the very beginning of this chain, who somebody's real identity? And then how secure is it? And what happens if, if you know, you have this, this is actually your identity and somebody steals it? So for all those reasons, I don't think that's ready tomorrow, but I think that's one of the most exciting um, potential applications, and, and I'm really enjoying working with, with companies and individuals who are engaged in that effort. It, it sounds like it, it sounds pretty exciting. It sounds like it would, it would close a lot of, uh, like you said, it would close a lot of holes in terms of ID security if you were just sharing the one piece of data that the institution or the organization needed, whatever the situation was. Yeah, I mean, uh, and I find it I find it exciting that the same technology could both solve, you know, developed world, first world problems, right? Like, oh, too many data breaches, Equifax, whatever the, whatever the you know, latest incident has been, and there have been many, um, but can also solve these fundamental problems of, you know, essentially human rights, accessibility without a digital identity, without any identity, I should say. You can't, you know, in many parts of the world, engage in banking or education or voting. So that it's, it's exciting to me that this exact same technology could potentially solve all those kinds of problems. And 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 James, would you would you agree that that's would that be your number one pick as well, or is there a different angle to the question that you, that you would have in terms of like like I said, developments that seem much further out versus the ones that seem a little more realistic or a little more like they're coming soon? I think it's it's uh, attitudes and ideas about you know one topic in particular. It's that artificial intelligence where. It seems very much like some people speak of it as a all or nothing proposition. Either it's you've got strong AI and it can solve all your problems and it can do things better than you can and or it doesn't exist and therefore we don't have to consider it. And I would say that as the uh, AI researchers continually say and have since like the 1950s, strong AI is at least a decade off. So that fits perfectly in your time. We don't have those solutions that are going to replace uh, attorneys or other practitioners or, or people in this space. But we do have services that are are going to dramatically, I think, improve practice and, and make us better lawyers and uh, give us better tools to make decisions that are, at the very least, uh, more informed. So the way that I look at it and, and where I think I see a lot of the nearer-term uh, opportunities are with clients looking at things like standard contract language or looking at data that, you know, in some ways we can model because we have a lot of examples or instances of that data. So you think of like something as easy as a spell check, uh, you know, where you've got suggested changes to words as you're typing, you know, maybe you, you accidentally made a mistake, maybe you don't know how to spell something, you've got a tool here that's going to offer up certain suggestions, but that when it gets to my last name or Laura's last name, it may be wrong. And that's fine. We can discern that. You know, we're, our eyes are drawn to that intentionally to determine if we can make a change. 
Well, imagine using that sort of technology layered on top of analysis of things that are, are more consistent in practice where there's a, a set of terms or there's a certain type of clause or there's a reference to something or a point of law we need to make. And, you know, we've inserted in a document, someone's made reference to a case, uh, but there's been a lot of information that's been covered in the background where the system itself might just suggest and say, hey, well, when a point like this has been raised before, this is how it was addressed, or here's some language we found, or the boilerplate contract language that you had always has this section in, or maybe 97% of the time has this section that was removed here in the last round of edits. We're not telling you you should put it back in, but we're drawing your attention to it so that you can make a determination of whether you should. Well, that just makes people more informed practitioners. It doesn't necessarily make us smarter, um, but it can. we can springboard off of that and say, here's an area where I can spend a couple minutes or a half hour going into a little bit more detail to confirm that the choices that are being offered up or the edits that are being offered up make sense. So it's it's good. It draws our attention to the things that are important or may be important and allows us then to make legal determinations in service of our clients. So it's not a program that just does all that and then makes those decisions and then tells us about it after the fact. We think that's that's pretty far out there, but these intermediary steps that give us the tools to to walk before we run, I think those are those are definitely primed to hit attorney practice within the next decade. And I'm I'm glad you mentioned that too because a lot of times we do seem to keep running across those attitudes so much that like you said, it's either, uh, well, we don't need AI at all, or it's just going to try to take over everything that I'm doing. But that's just like you said, it's it's just meant to be more of an assist as opposed as, as opposed to a replacement, you know. But I think I think sometimes people let their, maybe let their imaginations get away with them in terms of what AI can actually do or the extent extent of where it is. But uh, so I'm just glad you brought that up. And and uh, and just for our, all of our listeners, if they wanted to get in touch with you or, or had any questions or, or do business with the firm, what's the, what's the best way to get in touch with you guys? Uh, and I'll, 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 and I'll pose that question to, to Laura. Sure. I can, I'm most easily reached probably by email and it's L J E H L at bakerlaw.com. I like okay. for James Shear. It's J S H E R E R at bakerlaw.com. Okay. Laura and James, I'd like to thank you again for coming on to the podcast and giving us a lot of good information and, uh, again, like I said, we, we appreciate all you do, and, and thanks for thanks for coming in with kind of a you know a different angle on the emerging technologies for us to kind of consider. Because like I said, I don't I don't think the legal aspects always come up first. I think a lot of times we tend to want to dive um, into the the hardware and software only and kind of stay there. So so thank you for that, um, and uh, you know enjoy the rest of your week, both thanks of you. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. Coming to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018, the Blockchain and Future Tech Expo. This is going to be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. We're going to be talking about blockchain and its applications. We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and several other future technologies that are poised to and actually changing our lives as we speak. Here's why you should attend. As you may know, early adopters are the ones that investigated and profited from things like the gold rush in the 1800s, from the dot-com boom in the 1990s, from the internet boom in 2005, from the smartphone explosion in 2007, from the real estate boom that ended in 2008, and of course, from the Bitcoin boom that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first, and their covered wagons, they find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter and you want to find the biggest nuggets, 
then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more. But artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is going to have not only 5,000 plus attendees, but will showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. That's blockchainfuturetechexpo.com. Thank you. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.